Thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool Industry Focus. Slack is a collaboration hub that lets you organize your team's work into channels where everyone is included, relevant information is in one place, and new team members can easily get up to speed. Learn more at slack.com. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, April 11th, as Shannon will point out to you, my birthday, and we've got a roundup of two big news stories, a phase three flop with major implications across biotech and a big buyout. This is Michael Douglas, your intrepid financialist host and past healthcare host, filling in for Christine Harges, who is taking a well-deserved vacation. And we just decided to change everything up for this episode because Todd Campbell's not calling in either. Instead, uh, I'm joined in the studio by healthcare analyst Shannon Jones, who is making her industry focus debut. So please welcome her with me to the show. Shannon, welcome. It's good to have you. Michael, thank you so much. I am so excited. It's a bit surreal to be sitting in here uh, with you on your birthday. I consider it a privilege, <laughs> an honor. Um, thank you for for that opportunity. <laughs> sure, uh, I'm uh, I'm certainly excited to have you in while I'm subbing for Christine. So let's talk about our two big news items. And truthfully, did not oversell these. Um, I think they're they're pretty major. So the first one, Insight had a major drug flop. Let's talk about that a little bit. And I would even say major drug flop is probably an understatement at this point. (laughs) Um, This was, and probably will be for 2018, one of the biggest pipeline blow-ups, I think. Um, In particular, what happened? So, Insight last Friday announced a failed phase three study where basically they were pairing Merck's uh, checkpoint inhibitor, Keytruda, which we have all grown to know and love, with Insight's drug, Epicotostat, an IDO inhibitor, in patients with melanoma. Long story short, the study was stopped. They found that the combination of these two drugs together wasn't more than what was already being seen with Keytruda alone. So, in a lot of ways, I think that this this study is not only bad for Insight, but really bad for the immunotherapy industry in general. Yes, and we'll get into kind of some of those broader implications in a minute. But but first, why people were so excited about Epicatastat. And by the way, dear listeners, we both looked this up before the episode because we're used to reading these drug names, not saying them. I know Christine's talked about this before, but here we are. <laughs> so if I pause beforehand, it's because I'm checking uh, my my notes for how to pronounce it because it's kind of a mouthful, epicatastat. Um, so the idea here is that you know PD-1 inhibitors are supposed to take the brakes off the immune system and epicatastat was supposed to essentially boost that. Now, you know, Keytruda and Opdivo have which is Bristol-Myers drug, have both been kind of at the center of this revolution that we've seen in cancer care with the PD-1 inhibitors. And the the broad goal has been, okay, cool, these PD-1 inhibitors look like they're going to be some kind of standard of care. Maybe it's in second or third line, you know, depending on the cancer and what the data says and all of that. But if you can't beat them, join them. So let's go ahead and try to join these drugs with our drugs and sort of see what happens. And this was a, in many ways, very surprising failure because past data had been so good. 
Exactly. Yeah. So last year at the ASCO Healthcare Conference, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, um, Insight presented really compelling phase two data. Um, investors were quick to jump on the Insight bandwagon with this particular drug. And really, many expected this phase three trial to be an easy home run win. It was really anything but. And when you consider the fact that it failed in what's considered kind of the low hanging fruit of therapeutic indications, which is melanoma, mm-hmm. it makes this fail that much more bad. Yes, and it certainly says uh, a lot of negative things about the drug's future, potentially. Now, now let's let's hop into that. Of course, um, the you know Insight CEO. There are a number of other combo trials being conducted or that are in process right now, um, and the CEO has basically said, "Well, it's and I'm quoting here an open question," end quote, um, as to sort of what happens next. What's your two cents here? Yeah, so the company is planning to go back and do a subgroup analysis. Look to see if there are any patients that maybe did respond a little bit better than others. Um, as you and I both know, Michael, and probably many of our listeners, retrospective subgroup analysis is usually not a good sign of confidence in yeah. the biotech industry. So not feeling uh, particularly confident about their decision to keep this an open question. Um, they do have a pretty robust pipeline, and I'd rather see them focus their efforts on some of these other therapies that they're going after, some of these other indications. Um, but in particular, I mean, just looking at Insight with IDEO right now, In addition to melanoma, there were four other indications. There was lung cancer, renal cancer, head and neck cancer, bladder cancer. And these were being studied with other companies, too. So AstraZeneca with their Infinzi, Bristol-Myers Squibb with Updevo. Um, So this will have ripple effects. Um, I'd be really curious to see what they may get out of some of these analyses moving forward, but I'm not hopeful overall. No, I I think that's... Very fair, yeah. Post hoc is just never a great a great spot to be um, because you know there are all kinds of artifacts in the data. Um, but let's let's talk about so Insight got slammed yes, uh, when they the a- announced this uh, this data, and um, with that in mind, you know market cap's a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. But as you pointed out, there's a lot more that the company still has in the pipeline, and in fact, it already has a drug on the market, uh, Jackify, which uh, did uh, uh, just over a billion dollars last year mm-hmm. So uh, in sales. So, there's certainly still plenty of reason um, potentially to like the company. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I don't think the valuation is really that. Um, I, I think it's a little bit overvalued, because, mm-hmm. you know, to some extent, I, I think that IDEO looks like it's maybe dead on arrival. Maybe not dead on arrival. We can always hold out hope, but I'm not holding a lot of hope right now. Um, but they do have a number of other pipeline candidates. They do. Um, in particular, and coming up in just a couple of weeks, uh, Olimiont, which is an Eli Lilly-partnered rheumatoid arthritis drug that is currently already approved in Europe, um, is set to have its day with the FDA here. They'll be having an advisory committee meeting on April the 23rd. Mm-hmm. Um, this drug has had its history, for sure. Um, it sounds like, though, um, Analysts are pretty uh, are expecting that this particular adcom will go well. Um, so this could be some short-term boost for revenue for Insight. Um, as you mentioned, Jackify, they do have a blockbuster cancer drug that you can't deny. Peak sales right now estimated to be about three billion annually, um, and really. 
they've got a pipeline with 10 different targets. So I think really Insight kind of makes the case for a lot of these uh, revenue-starved big biopharmas that are needing some short-term boost in cash. This could actually be a really good opportunity for them to pick up Insight. Yeah. And uh, no, I think that's good insight on insight. I'm sorry. I, I, I warned you beforehand that I was going to do that at least once. This is true, ladies and gentlemen. Michael Douglas will be here all day yep. on his birthday. Bad, bad puns. It's, it's kind <laughs> of, I've built a career out of them. Um, so, but but let's let's talk about that because um, one of the things that you mentioned before we got on the show was that you saw insight as a potential um, takeout candidate, you know, potentially for one of these um, let's say late-term pipeline-starved bigger biotechs, right? And um, you know, Gilead Sciences is one that kind of comes to mind. Um, you know, Biogen is certainly somewhat pipeline-starved, but yeah, maybe not as good of a fit. Um, I think Amgen was on your list as well. Yes. Um, so, so my 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 big question though is when I look at Jackify. So let's say it hits three billion in peak sales. So that would imply that Insight is priced at just under five times peak sales. So that works, right? That valuation works just off there. Because usually we see takeouts in the kind of the three to five times peak sales. So that is reasonable. And you've got some additional upside in this pipeline. I mean, we've talked primarily about two drugs now, but um, they've got a PI3K inhibitor. Now, Gilead shareholders will remember PI3K inhibitors have kind of a mixed uh, uh, history with uh, Gilead's Zydelig um, having a big, nasty black box warning um, for a lot of really terrible side effects. Um, you know, most of the rest of the stuff is kind of early to mid stage, but it's a pretty deep and diverse pipeline. And and you've actually kind of turned me into a believer that it could reasonably be a buyout candidate. Yeah, I think um, as you and I both know, for a lot of these biopharmers that are strapped mm-hmm. um, for some late term revenue driving drugs, um, they're generally not going to also look for bargains. They're going to find sometimes some uh, and really go for overpriced assets. Mm -hmm. Um, I definitely don't think that Insight by any means is a slam dunk M&A target, but now with the market cap down over 50% just from a year ago, I think it becomes that much more attractive, especially for the Gileads that have an oncology pipeline that Jackify could sneak right into and do really well. Yeah, and especially because the drug is, to some extent, plug and play, right? It's already on the market, it's already gotten some scale. Perhaps not, well, hopefully not as much scale as it will ultimately get. But it's certainly in a in a, in a good spot in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of opportunity there as well across the pipeline. Okay, so that's our 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 take. Uh, I mean, I think if you are an Insight shareholder right now, you're probably doing some soul searching. Uh, I would be. Um, I'm not. I don't think this is a stock that's a compelling buy on the dip, um, and I, we certainly don't believe in purchasing stocks based on potentially becoming an M&A target. That said, um, I don't know, for me the market reaction felt about right, and so I kind of feel about Insight now as I did then, which is, could be interesting, a little bit uh, rich for my blood personally. Yeah, I have to agree there. Um, Insight, uh, really without this clear combination strategy, it leaves a lot of question marks for me. Um, until I think the company figures that out, I think I'll stay on the sidelines. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about broader industry very briefly, and then we'll head on to our second topic. So, this is just bad news for immuno-oncology across the board, because we finally now have a, a really clear sign of a combo drug 
whiffing. And frankly, there are a lot of combo drugs uh, being tested out there right now. Um, I mean, last time I checked, which was maybe a month ago, there were over 800 clinical trials involving either Keytruda or Optiva, which are, again, the two big leaders in PD-1. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just on the IDO inhibitor space alone, you saw when this news came out for Insight, uh, New Link Genetics, for instance, fell 42%. This is a company relatively new on the scene. They've got a pipeline. Their core two assets are all IDO inhibitors. Yeah. <laughs> they fell 42% on Friday alone. Nectar Therapeutics uh, wasn't immune either, fell 7%. And even Bristol, uh, Bristol Myers Squibb with Updevo even fell slightly on the news. I will make mention, though, Bristol's IDO inhibitor, same class, slightly different mechanism of action. So time will tell how it plays out for Bristol. But really across the board, I think what you're seeing is investor sentiment is really changing for these combination strategies. It's a big question mark within the industry. And, and I think really from an investor's perspective, an everyday investor, um, this really drives home the point, take those phase two results with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Um, it is not uncommon for a phase two drug to look really great, but then come in phase three and utterly bomb out just like this drug did. Um, so take it with a grain of salt, recognize that you might see some promising signs, but as it gets exposed to larger patient populations, if it's not a safety issue, it'll be an efficacy issue, and either way, you need to use some caution. Yeah, absolutely. No, and this is the this is the classic thing with all biotech, right? Is that hey, there's a ninety percent fail rate once a drug enters phase one. It's still not better than a coin toss, even at phase three. And so you just kind of have to play those odds. And that's why I think <clears throat> all of us, when we invest in healthcare, tend to try to go for fairly diversified portfolios. Some are going to do well, some will whiff, and predicting them beforehand is not the easiest thing in the world. All right, so we will turn to our second story, a big buyout in a second. But first, a word from our sponsor. Thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool Industry Focus. Slack is a collaboration hub that lets you organize your team's work in easily searchable channels. So whether it's projects, interests, teams, by office, all the right people are always in the loop. Relevant information is in one place, and new team members can easily get up to speed. No reply all emails. Slack connects the tools and services you need in one place. It allows you to organize your team with real-time messaging, voice or video calls, group file sharing, and searchable archives all in one easy-to-use app. We use Slack extensively at The Motley Fool, and we love using it um, because it really does cut down on that email clutter. You know, you just kind of fire a quick message. Someone gets back to you when they get a chance. It's, you know, out there in a channel so that if other people need to learn something, they can really easily find it. It's so searchable, so much better than any email inbox I have personally dealt with. Um, And that's probably in part why they call, uh, you know, why why this tagline here is Slack, where work happens. Learn more at slack.com. That's Slack. S-L-A-C-K dot com. All right. So let's turn to our second big story, which is a big buyout. And, you know, if we sound like broken records, it's because every week there seems to be some kind of big buyout going on, if not in healthcare, then in some other sector. Um, But so on Monday, so just two days ago from recording, at least, Novartis announced that they were going to pay $218 per share uh, for Avexis, for a total of cost of $9.8 billion. That's an 88% premium, which is uh, over the previous uh, closing price on April 6th, which is 
pretty good return. Congratulations, the Vexus shareholders. You have had a very, very good uh, few days. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Novartis here, and I must say, Novartis has been impressing me as of late. Um, I'm normally not too bullish on big biopharma, um, but Novartis is actually making some really interesting novel plays. They're not sitting on the sidelines. They're not going after Me Too indications. They're going after some really novel things, and Avexis proves that. Mm-hmm. Um, for listeners that are not as familiar, Avexis is uh, a gene therapy company could uh, have the first gene therapy for SMA. For those Biogen investors out there, you'll recognize SMA as being spinal muscular atrophy, uh, a rare mu- neuromuscular disorder caused by a genetic defect in a particular gene, specifically the SM1 gene. Um, Avexis here is hoping to, to make a play in a space that is still a huge unmet need, despite the fact that Biogen has the only approved drug for SMA right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the thing with Spinraza is that it arrests, or appears to at least arrest or delay, uh, slow down effects. Um, the idea here of this gene therapy is that the potential, and of course, let's be clear here, it is only potential right now. We do not have phase three data, <laughs> which, as we just discussed, is kind of important. Um, but uh, the potential to possibly create a fix. I mean, if you can fix the gene um, you know, the genetic defect, then potentially you could see spinal muscular atrophy defeated, perhaps. And again, you know, we are speculating here. But if that's how this drug ends up functioning, then you could see that unmet need basically be entirely met, at least for everyone who can pay. Yeah, and to that point, when you think about gene therapy, this could be a literal one-and-done therapy. Spinraza right now requires really what's called a front-loaded dosing strategy, where you give more doses up front, and then you have to give ongoing maintenance doses. Mm -hmm. Um, This could be a huge game-changer, if approved, um, as a one-and-done fix-it therapy for these critically ill patients. One of the things that's interesting about spinal muscular atrophy is that Spinraza costs, well, a lot. I mean, $750,000 for that first year's treatment and about $375,000, you know, a comparative bargain uh, for years after. Um, and it generated almost a billion dollars in 2017, uh, just under $900 million. Um, so with that in mind, there is there are plenty of reasons to think that insurers might be willing to pay a good deal, a, a good deal more for a one-and-done drug. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity here if the drug succeeds. Now, one thing we should point out is that um, you know fellow Gilead shareholders are probably remembering, huh, this sounds a little bit like what happened with hepatitis C. And to some extent, yes, that is what could happen. So what we could see here is that this drug sort of burns hot in its first few years as it basically uh, sort of helps all the current patients, again, if it succeeds, and then probably tails off a little bit after that because it'll be just uh, helping new patients as they are are born and identified with SMA. Um, So that means that we'll probably hit peak sales early and then taper off some and kind of plateau for a long time period because it's curing a disease. That, that's a great <laughs> that's a great outcome. And um, if Wall Street analysts aren't thrilled with the growth uh, curves there, tough. Um, it's it's a, a win-win for everyone. And um, if it ends up panning out that way, there's every reason to think that Novartis is going to be well compensated for this long term. 
Absolutely. And I would even add to that, even beyond their lead candidate, which right now is AVX 101, um, Novartis is really inheriting a platform, a gene therapy platform. So Novartis has already said they are committed to developing gene therapy drugs in neuroscience and ophthalmology. This could be exactly what they need to really springboard that growth long term. And to, to that point, I mean, this isn't Novartis's first acquisition in this space. They bought, um, they licensed Spark Therapeutics Luxturna, uh, which is for an inherited form of blindness, um, just a few months ago. And so this is their second kind of big play in this space. Novartis is signaling that they are definitely going to be playing heavily here, perhaps over the long term. And, and one of the questions probably for Novartis shareholders to ask themselves is, is Avexis' platform plus the Spark Therapeutics drug enough? Or is Novartis going to need to build out some more expertise and, and some more pipeline and, and perhaps a couple more platforms? And that's an open question, and it's something we'll just kind of have to watch for. But let's, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, what this means for kind of broader M&A. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what you're starting to see is a trend of a lot of these large biopharma companies no longer just looking at these individual pipeline candidates and saying, I want to buy this, this asset. Um, they're actually now beginning to look beyond that does this company bring a manufacturing expertise, mm-hmm. manufacturing capability that goes beyond that? Is there a platform that we can now launch more drugs off of? Um, so I think you'll probably start to see this more. Um, we know that uh, Gilead purchased Kite uh, in 2017. Kite Pharma was, for the longest time, way behind Juno. Um, but I think the reason why Gilead went after Kite, obviously there were some safety issues, but it was the fact that Kite had the manufacturing capabilities already in place. Mm-hmm. I think that'll be an important trend to watch as you're looking to see who could get picked up next. Yeah, and, and this is it's this idea of plug and play again, that to some extent, you know, these big biotechs and big biopharmas that are looking to either plug a hole in their uh, platforms or in their pipelines or to just you know find something accretive and, and work with it. They're thinking not just about upfront costs, but they're also thinking about what those knock-on effects are. I mean, the FDA has certainly been sending plenty of drugs back to the drawing board for manufacturing issues. Well, if someone has already cleared those issues out, that is another potential problem that is just gone. You've paid up a little bit to de-risk that, but just like we pay for home insurance, right? There's a real reason to do so. Um, the, the way I likened this to Shannon when we were chatting about it yesterday was, um, I'm buying a shed, um, or I've actually already bought a shed, and I'm assembling it this weekend. And by that, what I mean is I'm paying somebody else to assemble it, because it is not a... Um, hmm. I'm just not very good at building things. <laughs> and so it just makes sense in that case for me to pay up a little bit to de-risk that particular uh, uh, part of my of my yard. So very excited about that. Um, another question that I, I think a lot of people watching this deal are probably thinking, which is, what was Biogen thinking? Why didn't Biogen make this purchase? Right. I mean, this is a drug that could directly impact really Biogen's biggest success of the last couple of years, which was. To be clear, a partnered drug, you know, they could have gotten the full rights to it, to this other drug that, you know, again, could be a lot bigger. They've made moves sort of, they've, they've certainly indicated that they're interested in um, companies kind of like Avexis. How did Novartis beat them to the punch? 
That is the question of the ages, Michael. And that is, I think, what is having, what the reason why a lot of Biogen investors probably right now are scratching their heads. Um, of course, we can't see right now if this was some sort of bidding war. Right. If so, um, I really hope that Biogen was at the table um, for that conversation. If not, then I'm really disappointed that Biogen didn't at least try. Um, to your point, not only is this, did it make sense from their own pipeline perspective, they are strategically refocusing themselves on neuroscience assets. They already have a preclinical uh, gene therapy in play. So this would have made total sense for Biogen. Um, the CEO has mentioned wanting to do more deals, and we really haven't seen that. There's been a couple of deals here and there, but we really haven't seen that yet. So if it does come out that Biogen didn't even come to the table, if I was a Biogen investor, I would be really concerned. Yeah, I, I think that's very fair. And because, I mean, frankly, you look at Biogen and they are incredibly concentrated, right? I mean, you look at their current revenue, it's basically multiple sclerosis. There's a little bit more, but that's pretty much it. You look at their pipeline, you know, late stage, we're looking at primarily um, Alzheimer's, and which, which has a companies unfortunately have an atrocious record at successfully uh, bring an Alzheimer's drug to market. It basically doesn't happen. Um, and so, or at least it hasn't happened historically, I suppose. Um, and so, it, it feels like there's a lot of concentrated risk there for a company that's that big. Um, this could have been a great opportunity for them to diversify. Of course, one of the things that Biogen's management said, and I want to be clear here, they're not unique in this. Pretty much everybody says this, but they say, well, you know, yes, we want to buy things that will be accretive. Of course, we only want to buy at the right price. Um, I, I'm not aware of any company that says we'll buy things at any price, <laughs> but, but it bears in mind, it bears thinking here, you know, did Biogen step away because they thought that, you know, it got too, it, basically the premium got too high. Um, so, the, the final question, I guess, for us then is, did Novartis overpay? $9.8 billion, not cheap. Yeah, not cheap at all. When we're looking just at AVX 101 right now, um, analysts are, are pegging peak sales in about the $2.4 billion range. So we're looking at about three and a half to four times sales right now, which is not terrible, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is certainly within its range. But I think, you know, with an 88% premium um, for a company that has no approved drugs, gene therapy is still pretty novel and unproven for the most part. I think time will tell. I don't want to automatically say they've overpaid, but until we see, um, I know AVX 101 uh, will be filed later this year, so we'll get uh, the data hopefully right before that. But we'll we'll have to see if they overpaid. I don't know that. Yeah. No. And of course, no one can know. I mean, to be honest, I, I'm actually I'm of the opinion that Novartis paid a pretty good price because it's getting that platform, and that's the thing is that you know if you're able to get that three to five just with the lead candidate, everything else is gravy, I start getting pretty interested. And um, this, as you pointed out earlier, Novartis is making some smart moves. Um, increasingly, my view on companies is that those that allocate capital most efficiently and, and most effectively tend to really be your big winners. And um, well, <laughs> basically this means that Novartis is going to have to get a, a second look from me after I'd largely written off Big Pharma, uh, as I think you have. So that'll be that'll be certainly a long conversation for us to have in the future. Absolutely. And of course, just to underscore the fact that, you know, this is assuming the drug works, right? right? Um, <laughs> Which... and 
really, I think the theme of this entire industry focus has been be very careful with phase two, because phase three can come up and uh, and blow things away. But um, I do think it presents some really compelling investment opportunities long term. Absolutely. Well, folks, Shannon, thanks for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this week's healthcare show. Questions, comments, you can always reach us at industryfocusatful.com. As always, people in the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Shannon Jones, I'm Michael Douglas. Thanks for listening, and full on. Full on.